Well, it's very good to have you all here. Um, if you'll open your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, I'd like to begin by uh, reading this before we pray. Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. It's a wonderful passage of Scripture. Acts 17. Paul in Athens. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of, full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the, the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, and even some of your own poets have said, For we are also, or for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. This is the Lord's word. Let me pray and we'll get started here. Again, our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day, a beautiful day you've given us, um, doubly so because it is a day of rest. We pray that you will bless our souls. We pray that our discussion would be pleasing to you, Father, edifying to each of the, the people here, that you would give them a firm grasp of what they believe and uh, with that with which they might struggle. We pray that our questions and discussion will be pleasing that they will be again edifying and that we would be prepared even now during this hour throughout in this building and also in the other building. Uh, we pray that our hearts would be lifted up and that we would be prepared for your worship. Thank you again for such love and such kindness to us. We pray all of this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
So again, this week, we want to consider uh, what this church believes. Understand, you're at a Presbyterian and Reformed church, okay? Um, we're not a community church. There are community churches, and there are churches where um, they will preach the gospel, but they will not delve into more controversial things like limited atonement or election or these sorts of things. Um, and, and we're not here to uh, dismiss or say that they're not really churches. Like our confession will teach, or does teach, that all churches are a mixture of purity and impurity. There's, there's no perfect church this side of heaven because we are not yet in heaven. Uh, but a day will come when we are in heaven and there will be no more guessing, no second, uh, you know, questioning. We'll know perfectly and we'll know the Lord as we are known. So today we want to look at the second vow. And here's the second vow of membership. Do you believe in one living and true God in whom eternally there are three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who are the same in being and equal in power and glory, and that Jesus Christ is God the Son come in the flesh? So like the first, the second vow deals with what you believe. Again, we brought out a couple weeks back, can two men walk together if there's no agreement uh, from Amos 3.3. Again, um, we got a big problem if you don't agree <laughs> with these things. These are very basic biblical vows here. Um, and like they were baptizing those who had believed um, and, their, and their families, we would say. <laughs> Thank you, Nate. Um, <clears throat> uh, there was a set belief. There was, a, there was an actual doctrine. Christ is Lord. There's a doctrine. Um, if we do not believe these fundamental truths, nothing else make, would make sense uh, in the rest of the church. We can have no common foundation. So we're looking at today, and why I read Acts 17, is who's God? Uh, who is this God that we claim to worship? Is, is it any God we want it to be? Is it uh, the God of the Hindu or the Buddhist? Bear in mind uh, that without God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we would not have a church at all. It is because of him that we exist, and we exist for him. He's the center of, of all that we are to do in the church. And, and if you think about it, because he's God, he dictates to us what he wants. And, and if we don't do what he wants, then, then go join the golf club. Um, because that's that's their business but our business is is to serve the Lord <clears throat> so if at any point you have questions or comments please feel free to weigh in otherwise I can talk an entire hour with no problem <laughs> it's a gift <laughs> uh, so the, the, here's the big question for you what, what is the chief end of man yeah, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the that's the famous first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. By the way, a catechism is not a Roman Catholic invention. A catechism is it's actually a word that is drawn from the Greek, and I believe it's in Luke chapter one, where it's a question and answer type thing. It's where you, it's a it's a pedagogical tool of of training uh, children. Pedagogy comes from training children. Um, it's how we train and impart 
doctrinal truth so we would teach it to our children and it's just it's like reciting the Apostles Creed how many times have you heard somebody say something and the Apostles Creed will come to your mind and you'll say that's not right what they're saying because it doesn't align itself with the truth of Scripture or the scriptures themselves even better uh, come to mind <clears throat> so we ask this question what is the chief end of man man's chief end his main purpose his primary goal in life is to glorify God and to enjoy him without God we would be nothing more than a club or an organization he is central to all we are and do and ever will be and so this vow that we're looking at uh, asks you to attest to the truth of what this states do you believe that's what we ask is this something you are resting in is it something in which you are placing your whole confidence in evangelism explosion they had a great illustration James Kennedy would say, now, there's a chair. No, he'd say it like this. Now, there is a chair. <laughs> right, he had a very robust voice. <clears throat> and, and he'd say, why isn't that chair holding you up? And the person would say, well, I'm not sitting in it. He goes, well, if you think if you sat in it, it would hold you up? I'm, I don't know. Well, what, what do you need to do to test that? And then he'd say, well, I need to sit in it. He goes, go ahead, sit in it. Pull your feet up. Now go ahead and, and see you're all sitting. Now just pull your feet up. Is that chair holding you? It's holding you. You're, you're resting in it. It's, you're not doing anything. You're resting. It's holding you up. This is what we're asking. Do you believe? Are you resting in the truth of what this vow says? Do you believe in one living and true God in whom eternally there are three distinct persons God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit who are the same in being and equal in power and glory and that Jesus Christ is God the Son come in the flesh um, so we're asking that many people say they believe in God um, actually and it's it's interesting uh, as of last year only 63 percent of the Protestant Church absolutely believe in God that's only 63 percent so it wouldn't be off base for me to push on a group sitting in a room looking at a membership vow we absolutely believe that God exists we absolutely we're not pretty sure God exists we're not uncertain that and, and we're not saying well, probably doesn't exist which for the life of me, I can't understand why anyone would go to church at all. If God didn't exist, why would you go? Go drink coffee and play golf or you know, watch something stupid on television. Um, so why anyone would come to church who didn't believe in God? And yet, the latest statistic, 63% of all professing Protestants uh, only 63% believe in an absolute, absolutely believe that there is a God. I suppose, I suppose that's exactly right. Well, God is irrelevant because it still has positive benefits. You know, I'm, I'm sending positive, positive vibes your way. You know, that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, I'll stay healthy and I'll get rich. Yeah, yeah, I'll keep the, keep the business, the, the, the flow going with my business connections. So at that point, though, you realize we're nothing better than a club if, if it comes to that. That's, that's really all we are. Um, <clears throat> so many believe in God. So this is the, the people who say they believe in God. Um, 
yet even those uh, among those who say they believe in God, their belief is really nothing more than an adherence to a fact. Okay, so now let's take the 63% that say, I absolutely believe in a God. How many, how many, what percentage of that 63% actually have just the faith of a demon? That James says this in 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. So what's the, what's the difference, would you imagine, between a demon and a, let's say, a nominal believer? Am I, am I clear at all? You're all kind of just looking at me like, hmm. The difference between demonic faith and a biblical faith. Is that the same as a nominal believer? Yeah, I would say. Um, uh, no, uh, the nominal would be a Christian in name only. Yes, 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 I believe in God. I, I don't go to church. I'm a Protestant, though, and I'm on the members of a church. I'm on the membership role of a church, but I don't actually go to church. A nominal means name only. They're a Christian in name only. What would be the difference between a, a demon's faith, a belief, and a, and a nominal Christian's belief? Well, the demon's faith only believes certain says by himself in the scriptures yeah and and he rests in it so a couple of weeks back we said putting on the, the belt of truth um, and we talked about truth as being objective and subjective an objective faith is recognizing yes there is a God that's a fact God created the whole universe God did all these things I know this to be true. A subjective truth then would be, the, a subjective element of the truth would be that I embrace that truth for my own. So I'm not just believing facts, I'm believing these facts are true, especially for me. Christ died and rose again. That's historically factual. 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, up to 500 people saw him at once. What difference does that make in your life? You see the difference there? The demons believe the truth. They know who God is. When they saw Jesus Christ, they said, have you come to torment us before the time? Right? They, they know exactly who Jesus Christ is. They know who God is. And they know what their end is. And they know what the consequences of rebellion against God are. Have you come to torment us? And they shudder, says James. Do you shudder at who God is? Do you embrace the truth of who God is? Are you resting in who God is and what he's done? So it's, it, it's not just mere mental assent to facts. It's, it's, it's a matter of the will, the heart, embracing those things and resting in them. So we're going to get into this in the sermon later. Um, how do we know that... Um, God, God approaches Noah. God says, I'm going to destroy the earth because every thought of the heart of men is only evil continually. How do we know that Noah believed God when he said he was going to destroy the earth? He built an ark. <laughs> to the specifications that God told him to. That's how we demonstrate faith, right? That's how you know that Noah wasn't just going, oh, that's nice, God. <laughs> Thanks for telling me. 
he does something about it, doesn't he? And we know Abraham believed God. How do we know that? Because he went up to offer his son and knew he was going to come back with his son. Yeah, yeah. He goes up to offer his son. He goes out of a land that he doesn't even know where he's going. And the Lord says, just, I'm going to lead you to a place. Okay. And he gets up and he goes. And the whole of chapter 11 of Hebrews is one occurrence after another of people who didn't see the promise, who didn't didn't taste of the things per se, but they welcomed them. They they welcomed them from a distance and they acted on them. I, my favorite, I think, is Moses, who, according to Stephen, um, he thought, "I'm going to be uh, I'm the savior of these people. I, I'm here," and God utterly humbles Moses. And I never knew that before. I always thought that he was a man with of low self-worth, you know? Um, but according to Stephen, he wasn't in, in his sermon in Acts, what is it, 7, 8. Um, but he ends up being quite a man of God who, who says he'd rather endure the sufferings of Christ for, than for the, the pleasures of this world. He considered a greater value to suffer for Christ than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Here he was, a prince of Egypt. Imagine what he would have had at his disposal. You can hear, is it Cl Cliff Barrows? I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. Isn't it? It's wonderful. Yeah. And you could say, you could almost hear Moses singing this. That's how you know the difference between what is true saving faith and what is just a mental, a mental I got this intellectual fact in my head. But there in the but doesn't it say uh, somewhere in the Pentateuch I can't remember I'm thinking maybe numbers I'm in Leviticus now I think or numbers now maybe in Leviticus somewhere back there it says that I'm pretty sure it says that that Moses was the most humble of men and yet in God's eyes that's still not perfection that's still not he was considered the most meek. I, my guess is, my, my theory, Charlie, and it's just very interesting to me. Um, if, you, if you just turn with me back to, because this always, this puts something in, in a real light for me. Um, in Acts 7.22, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. But, when he was approach, approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptians. Notice, he uses his arms. He, he kills a guy. Yeah. He uses his own strength. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand so he has, the, he's like, well, of course, I'm the natural. I'm a shoo-in for this position. And I think, my theory, I think Moses, at the age of 40, is thinking, I'm going to deliver Israel. Look at my, he's, he's reading Providence, right? You know, God did preserve him to deliver his people. But it wasn't going to be by his strength. And if you go back to Exodus, what does is, what is the Lord say? Uh, first of all, you got 40 years of Moses in the wilderness. Now, he's married, and I think his wife had something to do with his coming to reality moments. 
I personally do, because marriage is a wonderful gift, and yet it's the thing that God uses to sanctify us. I think that wife, uh, Zipporah, I think she was instrumental to Moses being humbled. And then we see at the age of 80, he, he encounters God in this theophany in the burning bush, and he says, you find a very different man. You find a meek man. And it's interesting that God says, it'll be by my strength that I deliver the Israelites. Here, he thinks, he supposed that, uh, that he's, he's, God's going to deliver them through his strength, through him. But it's not through his strength. It's by God's strength. And what was the one sin he committed? That he the rock twice. He struck the rock when he was told to speak to the rock. Moses, Moses relied once more on his strength. Uh, doggone it, I'm going to... And the Lord says, oh, no, you're not. That's not how I'm delivering these people through your strength. I'm delivering them through my strength. So then you get to Hebrews 11, and then I think you just you just see this. So I, I'm agreeing with you, Charlie. I think something happened in that 40 years where he became the most meek. I'm not sure he was necessarily the most meek when he was 40, but by the age of 80, he was a different man than he was when he was 40. Yeah, he becomes stronger because you were talking about his wife. You know, he didn't he, he didn't circumcise his, his, his no. sons. And I think that's because of the the, the uh, society he was in. And so then Zipper gets really mad at him when, when he's gonna circumcise him. But then because he's getting closer to God, he's actually getting stronger. He's getting meager, but he's getting stronger to yeah, Exactly. Um, it says here, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch him them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. So you see that faith, faith without works, says James, is dead. Now we're not saved by our works, but the works are evidence of a genuine faith. What we saw in Abraham, what we see in Sarah, what we see in all of these saints. And, and, and it, it gets even better because, <clears throat> listen to this, I, what more shall I say to you? I'm in verse 32, for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword from weakness, were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, and others, listen to this, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection, and others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment, they were stoned, and they were sawn in two, they think that's Isaiah, they were tempted, they were put to death with a sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. 
And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They welcomed it from afar. They saw it from afar. So you see, the demons believe they shudder, but they're going to hell. The Christian, the man who believes in God, and this is what we're talking about, this kind of faith in the Lord, his whole life is changed because of who the Lord is. So you, you can imagine Moses is a wonderful example. He's in Egypt. He can have any woman. He can have, you know, I imagine he can make rules. You know, he's of Pharaoh's household. He has the treasures, he parties and drinking orgies, and he can do all of this stuff. And he says, nope, because I got someone better. I have, I have the Lord. I have Christ. And that's greater riches than all of these things. And so he goes off the worldly path and he follows the Lord, even though it's still at a distance. He doesn't, he doesn't even get to enter the promised land because of his sin. And yet he knows he's called a friend of God, right? And, uh, face to face. Yeah, there's something very sweet about the example of Moses. That's what we're talking about. Do you believe in this God? You see, what does Hebrews 11:6 say to us? And without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. There's blessing in following the Lord. So we're not asking you to just believe something mentally. We're asking you to believe it both mentally and from the heart that you would believe upon the Lord and that this would make a difference in your life, that it's that significant. Um, so consider, uh, uh, again, these things. Orthodoxy is important. Truth matters. You can be completely sincere in your efforts, but your efforts may be completely misdirected and misplaced. Paul of the Jews said this, and, and think of the Jews, again, very zealous. I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So the question is, what do we believe about God and what should you be able uh, with a clear conscience to attest? That's what we want to know. Let me read this vow again to you and then we're going to hand out some scriptures. Do you believe in one living and true God in whom eternally there are three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who are the same in being and equal in power and glory, and that Jesus Christ is God the Son come in the flesh. <clears throat> Where we want to know, do you believe that God is one? That God is one? Or that there's only one true God? Or do you believe, like the Athenians, Oh, there's a bunch of gods. And so we can say, I went to this, uh, my, my grandparents lived in Mount Shasta. Any of you ever been to Mount Shasta, California? Okay, so you've been there, you've driven through it. I don't know if you stopped there at all. It is the weirdest place <laughs> on the planet. Um, Mount Shasta is a phenomenon. It's a volcanic mountain. It's a beautiful mountain. I have cousins up there. I don't know what that means. <laughs> but they live up there. Beautiful mountain, and um, there's a lot of folklore about the mountain. Luminarians live up there. Aliens have built a temple inside the mountain. 
And so the people of Mount Shasta will have yearly, they'll have festivals celebrating the luminarians, luminary light beings, okay? Um, you go into town and there's, I went to this place, I was up there visiting my grandparents, and I, I'm always curious about world religions and the, the weird kind of stuff. <clears throat> I go into this bookstore called Michael the Archangel Bookstore. <laughs> that should have told me something. And I go in there, and there's a guy standing, and he's got a, they, they also had a frame shop. It's like Lander, you know, you've got 15 different things that your shop focuses on. And so this guy in there with a, this picture of this kind of old, crusty man, and I, I, I'm standing there, and I, I'm always looking for an excuse to talk. And I said, oh, is that, a, is that your father? He goes, oh, I'm not exaggerating when I do this. He goes, oh. Don't I wish? This is my enlightened master, the Raja Makajubijubi, you know, whatever his name was. And, uh, and I went, oh. He goes, oh, I'm so honored that you think that I'm like him. I went, oh. And so, you know, we chatted a little bit. I wasn't quite sure what to say. Um, and this guy, was a, he was a well-established man in town. He had a plumbing business. and. By all accounts, you know, he's logical because he's a plumber. Hot water on the left, right? Water runs downhill. This is a very down-to-earth kind of thing, and yet he's deceived. I'm not making... I, he was deceived. He's deceived in believing these things. And, and so you drive around Mount Shasta, and I, I kept up com uh, correspondence with him for a little while until I brought the claims of Christ to bear on what we were saying, and he cut off communication. So as I'm driving around Mount Shasta, I see a garage that's set up, and it's a shrine. It's got a Shiva stone in it. You know what a Shiva stone is? It's a big stone. It's, it looks like a 45 caliber bullet, but it's five tons of granite, and it's sitting in the middle of this garage. And, and there's flower petals sprinkled on it, and in the corner there's a picture of Jesus, there's a, a Buddha, and there's the... Oh, what's the, what's the Hindu god? God, uh, um, there's 33 million Just, just give me one. Just give me one. Who's the one who uh, creates creates chaos and peace? The uh, Kali. Okay, so it's it's you got. There's all these things all around, and you can see a little placard on on the stone that says this stone was brought. Guess where it was brought from? San Francisco. <laughs> that ought to tell you something, and it's come. But it's all the energies of the universe funnel down to this stone, and so you can come and you can worship there. Just right there in the garage. Right there in the garage. You don't even have to leave the property. <laughs> so, but this is this is the kind of thing that our world is. That's that sounds very extreme, but how many times have you heard people say, "Who am I to judge? They want to worship this." Who am I to judge? Well, they're sincere. I'm sure God's got a God's going to do something with them. The, and we hear this kind that pluralistic mindset is infiltrating the Lord's church. I'm telling you, we do not believe that. We do not believe that Kali is a real God. Now we could we could argue that it's a real demon, but we can't say that it's a real God. There is Paul goes up to Athens. He sees he's vexed. He's bothered in his spirit because he sees. And he's not bothered because he's saying they're stupid. He's bothered because look how deceived they are. They've been deceived by the evil one. They've got all of these 
these these idols they're worshiping these things and here's one idol that says to the unknown God and I'm here to tell you about the one God that you don't know about I'm going to tell you about Christ and the resurrection and, and so friends when we talk about this is we believe there's one God there's not multiple gods there's one um, so Morgan would you read for us Deuteronomy 6, 4, Anastasia, 1 Corinthians 8, 4 and 6, and Seth, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, um, K, Jeremiah 10, 10, and Charlie, Isaiah 45, 5 through 7. Wonderful passage. Do you have it in the King James? Of course. Do you? Yeah. Oh, that'll be good. Because yeah. that'll I evoke some discussion. I've the study Bible, but most of mine are King James. But I got any. Isaiah 45, 5-7. Uh-huh. Okay. That'll be interesting. Okay. Deuteronomy 6, 4. There you go. God is one and there is no other God beside him. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay. Remember, they're getting ready to go into the land of Canaan. There's no shortage of gods there. Moses' point, there is one God. 1 Corinthians 8, 4, and 6. First Thessalonians one nine. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Okay, the living and true God versus all the fake gods who aren't living and true. Um, <clears throat> Jeremiah ten ten. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath the earth quakes and the nations. Okay, and then the most controversial verses read this morning are Isaiah 45, 5 through 7. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Hmm. Creates evil? Yeah, and, and so that's why I asked if you were reading from the King James, because, let's see, uh, Michaela, what version are you reading? ESV. What does yours say? Five through seven or just seven? Yeah, just seven. Um, make well-being and create calamity. Okay, so the King James says evil, uh, but we say calamity, that hardship. That, do you, you understand who God is? He's not just the God of things that make us happy, and are easy, but he also brings hardship. He brings judgment on nations. He will likely bring judgment on this nation, and he he will still be wise, he will still be good, 
and he will be doing just exactly as he sees fit. See, this is the God that we serve, and he's one God. There is no other God. And Isaiah, again, against the contrast of all the idols that are dead. When I went to Burma, great experience, Myanmar, uh, Buddhists everywhere. And, and, you know, you can go and you'll see these little shrines at the corners of people's properties where they feed the demons, or feed the, the spirits that ward off evil demons, right? I mean, it's just such, uh, what a culture. And, and you see that they're worshiping all sorts of deities. Um, but God, God is the one who is in control of all things. And these others are just demons. First Corinthians 8. They're demons. That's why we don't participate in false worship because it's demonic. It's not the living and true God. Um, so please understand who we are as a church. Again, as we said the last couple of weeks, we are very biblically narrow. Okay? We do not worship or acknowledge the existence of other gods. If you want a congregation that recognizes other gods, we are certainly not it. We do not acknowledge the gods, or the spirits of the Native Americans. We do not acknowledge the gods of Mormonism, and beware, uh, we do not acknowledge that they are telling the truth. Mormonism uses the same language, the same uh, verbiage, but they do not use the same dictionary. Um, we do not worship the God of the Jehovah's Witness, of the Muslim, or of the Hindu. And we are not going to embrace other religions as being valid. Okay, we are, we are that narrow. Rather, we will call others to turn from what are false understandings of who God is to the true God and to place their faith or their confidence in him alone. We believe that God, the God spoken of in scripture, is the only true God. Questions or comments so far? Are we going to talk at all about why we worship the way we worship? Yes, we will be. Thank you for that. Short answer, because God tells us how he wants to be worshipped. And you find that whenever, and then in scripture, anyone decides to do otherwise, they die. <laughs> So that's, that's called the regulative principle of worship. God determines how he's to be worshipped. <clears throat> so I want to read here uh, concerning uh, the Trinity, because this is, the, this is one of those things that is controversial in some regard. Um, I'm reading from the Westminster Confession of Faith, Chapter 2, remember our secondary standard, Good Systematic Theology. There is but one only living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts, or passions, immutable, that means he doesn't change, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. They go on, God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, 
not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and has most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleaseth. That's the story of Job, isn't it? You go to the whole, what is it, 42 chapters, and the end of the book is, I'm God, and we do it this way because I say we do it this way. And Job goes, I should have shut up <laughs> 40, 40 chapters ago. <laughs> I should have just been quiet. Yeah, it could have been a shorter book. Um, so, so, I mean, then there's hard hardships come into our lives, and these two are ordained by God. Is He not God? Shall we accept the good and not accept the bad? Says Job. Let me continue. Again, um, in His sight, all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature. So as nothing to him is contingent or uncertain, he is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due, to him is due, from angels and men, and every other creature, whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. In other words, if I could speak for God, I'm God. And that's enough. You do what I tell you. You do when I tell you to do it. When I bring hardship into your life, you will thank me for that. When, when I bring blessing into your life, you will thank me for that. But I am due nothing less than all of yourself because of all that I am. So it's pretty cut and dry. It's pretty cut and dry what he says. So... He is a triune God. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead. Go ahead and say it with me if you know it. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. So let me, um, we're getting a little close to the time here. Uh, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. However, the truth of the Trinity is in the Bible. Again, quoting uh, Benjamin Warfield, it is more important to maintain the truth of the Bible than the actual verbiage. Uh, the question is, does the Bible teach that God is that the God is a Father, that He is that that the Son is God, and that the Spirit is God? Um, let's see, Kyle, would you read for us Matthew twenty-eight nineteen? Michaela, would you read for us Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen? And Nate, John one. 29 through 34 John 1 29 through 34 and I'll hand out a three more um, would you read Matthew uh, breathe 17 5 Catherine Luke 5 20 through 26 and then Doug would you read Acts 5 1 through 6 so again we're looking here does does the Bible actually teach the doctrine, the truth concerning the Trinity? Is there actually one God who exists eternally in three persons? Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Um, go therefore and make.
Notice that he doesn't say in the names, plural, but in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, bear in mind this. If this book were written by men, wouldn't the editor go, oh, wait a second, you need to turn that to a plural <laughs> because nobody's going to buy this. And yet, the biblical writers have no problem, notice this, they have no problem saying this, and not just in one place, but in multiple places. Um, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Michaela? The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Okay, so he mentions all three persons again of the Trinity, John 1, 29 through 34. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is, a, this is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came to baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom we see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. All three persons of the, the Godhead are mentioned in that one passage right there. The, the Father who sends, uh, sends uh, who reveals, the Father who, the, the Son upon which uh, John is going to baptize, and then the Spirit descending like a dove upon Jesus. All three persons of the Trinity are mentioned there. Uh, Matthew 17, 5. He, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Okay, who is Matthew referring to there? He's referring, who is the, so Jesus is the one who's being spoken of. Who speak, who's doing the speaking? This is my Son. The Father. It's the Father who's speaking. Luke 5, 20 through 26. When he saw their faith, he said to him, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your, your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise up and walk but that you may know that I am the Son of Man, excuse me, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He says to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Who can forgive sins? Oh, do you want to finish? Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, immediately he rose up before them, took up on what he had been lying on and departed to his own home, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, who were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. <laughs> yes, they have. Who can forgive sins? God alone. And Jesus puts the test out there, which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, pick up your mat, and go home. So that you may know that I have authority to forgive sins, ergo, that you may know I am God, pick up your mat and go home. And the man does it. And they go, wait a second. <laughs> what are we supposed to do with this? This man has just claimed and just proven that he is God. 
Um, and then finally, Acts 5, 1 through 6. <clears throat> but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not your own in your own control? Why have you conceived this in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. Did you say five or six? Six. Uh, and the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. So who has he lied to? He's lied to the Holy Spirit. Peter says, you have not lied to men, but to whom? to God. And so there's no discrepancy in the biblical writers uh, that, that there is anything off here. It is very plain that, that, that the doctrine of the Trinity is taught in Scripture. The early church recognized the three persons of the Trinity in the creeds. Notice both the Apostles and the Nicene Creed that we recite all speak of the Father, I believe in God the Father, I believe in God the Son, I believe in God the Holy Spirit. That that it's not just what the scriptures teach, but it's also what the early church recognized as being orthodoxy, meaning it's straight. It's, it's what the scriptures uh, instruct. It's what we should believe. Anyone who says that Jesus Christ is less than very God of very God is teaching a heresy that was condemned by the church. Anyone who says that... Um, the Spirit is something less than God himself is teaching a heresy. Um, that's, and it's kind of interesting because among evangelicals, I just got this this week, someone posted it, uh, it's from Ligonier. 31% of U.S. evangelicals say science disproves the Bible. 33% of evangelicals say gender is a choice. 33%. 38% say Jesus was not God. That's heresy. Now that's the evangelical church, friends. Is that a Barna survey? I don't know. It just came from Ligonier. Ligonier came from Ligonier. Really? Well, and here's 62% say God accepts all religions. This is evangelicals. This is You wonder why the church is in such a mess? Um, 62 say uh, percent say the Holy Spirit is is the force. Use the force, Luke. Um, that's not what the scriptures teach. He is he the Holy Spirit grieves. Force forces don't grieve. You know, um, you can't lie to the force to a force, but you can lie to the Holy Spirit. 66 percent of evangelicals say people are good by nature. That's not in the Bible anywhere, ever. 75% say God first created Jesus. Jesus is not a creation. He's God eternal. When it says he's begotten, that means that God presented him forward. It doesn't mean that he gave birth to Jesus. 
That's not what the scriptures are teaching anywhere. So you see, um, what we're teaching you is already unpopular with the vast majority of the evangelical church. Okay, but I'm standing with the church of history and I'm standing on the, the scriptures when I'm teaching these things. These are the things I want to safeguard you against. So, uh, the Westminster Confession concerning God and the Holy Trinity says this, In the unity of the Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, and the Holy, uh, Holy Spirit, or Holy Ghost, eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Uh, the three persons of the Trinity are the same in being and equal in power and glory. So we worship one God. When we go into worship, we worship one God. We're not worshiping three gods. All three persons of the Trinity are the same in substance. The Son and the Spirit are not lesser gods, but are owed worship and are to be given reverence. We recognize that there is the, the get ready for the, the large 25 cent words, ontological trinity and the economic trinity. Anyone want to hazard a guess what the ontological trinity is? What is ontology? Ontology is a study of being. So we'd say of essence. Of essence, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all the same. Um, I, I, I went to school with a guy named Matt Slick. What a great name. Slick. Hey, Slick. <coughs> And he wrote this. He's got a, a website called karm.org. Have you seen karm.org? Yeah. yeah, he was a friend of mine in, in seminary. Um, I doubt he remembers me now, but I, I sure appreciated him. When we, he says, when we say there are, they are equal in nature and attributes, we are speaking of what is called the ontological trinity, ontology being the study of being in essence. Of the three persons in the Godhead, each of the three persons in the Godhead are divine, have equal attributes, omniscience, omnipresence, holiness, etc. When we speak of how they relate to each other and the world, we are speaking of the economic trinity. Economic, from the Greek oikonomikos, which means relating to the arrangement of activities. To be overly simplistic, we could say that the ontological trinity deals with what God is and the economic trinity deals with what God does. You see the difference? So we speak of creation. We say God the Father decrees, Christ the Son accomplishes, and the Holy Spirit effects. When we speak of salvation, we say God the Father decrees, Christ the Son accomplishes, and God the Holy Spirit uh, effects. So God ordains, Christ accomplishes salvation on Calvary's cross, and the Holy Spirit applies that salvation to his people. We see all three people of the Trinity working in creation as well. So all three persons of the Godhead are working in creation and in salvation. Questions about that? I work in the dental office and it's a different economy. I'm in a different, my role is different than the dentist I work with. 
But if you want to talk about essence, we both have feelings and thoughts and lives outside of work, and you know, in, in that way, we would be equal. But there's but you're taking different roles. Yeah. And and so Philippians one, or, or Philippians two rather, talks about he did not the son did not. Um, desired equality with or see equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself so he is God but he he takes a subservient role in practice so that he enters in to the world takes upon himself human flesh in order to die in our place and and again uh, we could go on what does Emmanuel mean God with us it means God with us and and what does Jesus mean he saves his people from their sins. So we see all of these wonderful things. We're going to have to wrap it up. But understand, um, I'll read that, that vow again. Do you believe? Do you believe in one living and true God in whom eternally there are three distinct persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who are the same in being and equal in power and glory, and that Jesus Christ is God the Son come in the flesh? I have to read one more passage. Ephesians chapter 1. This is, a, this is a great one for you to reflect upon. Because again, you will see all three persons of the Godhead at work in our salvation. This passage of scripture, 3 through 14, um, rightly blow our minds. And friends, if you ever think you've got God figured out, you've just created an idol. Okay? We, we, can, we can apprehend him but to comprehend him, that would be the infinite. That would be a bucket trying to fit the waters of the oceans in it. You can't do it. Okay, so we can apprehend, but we can't comprehend God in his entirety. This, will, this comes about as close to anything in the scriptures that will blow your mind. Paul writes, Ephesians 1, 3-14, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Notice already, God the Father and Christ the Son. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him... We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, Father, Son, and Spirit, all being mentioned, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. There's all three persons of the Trinity working out our salvation, 
accomplishing the blessings that he has for us in Christ. Comments or questions? That's what we're asking you to believe. If you believe those things uh, that we've talked about so far, you're on a you're you're on a good path. <laughs> if you'll believe these things, let's pray and we'll go to worship. Again, our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day, and again, thank you for our dear Savior. We thank you, uh, Lord Jesus, for your your incredible love, your um, the fact that you humbled yourself endured such humiliation in order to redeem us. We thank you, Father, for choosing us in Christ, for your wise and and holy ways. And we thank you, O Spirit, for in the right time you opened our eyes and gave us hearts to believe the truth of the gospel. We pray, O Lord, that our hearts would be given to you, not just um, in a a shallow manner, but, Father, that we would give our, our all to you because you did not withhold anything from us. We ask that you would prepare us even now for your worship. We pray that um, the things we've learned today, that we've gone over or been reminded of, would lend themselves to us singing with hearts of gratitude, of confessing our sins and fleeing from them, and of listening heartily to your word. Thank you again. We pray all of this now in Christ's name. Amen. Next week we'll hit vow number three.